to the Dialogue Book Report, where we speak to authors and reviewers of fiction and nonfiction books of interest to LDS readers. I'm Andrew Hall, the Literature Book Review Editor at Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. Today I'm joined by three of my favorite novelists, Phyllis Barber, John Benyon, and Dean Hughes. Each of them has recently had a historical novel or novels published set in frontier-era LDS settlements in Utah and Nevada from the 1860s to the 1890s. Naturally, each of these novels include portrayals of polygamous marriages and the challenges offered by that practice. So I thought it'd be interesting to bring them together and talk about how they approach portraying Mormons and polygamy in this period. Phyllis Barber was born in Henderson, Nevada, and raised in Boulder City in Las Vegas. She received the Smith Pettit Foundation Award for Outstanding Contribution to Mormon Letters, a Lifetime Achievement Award. She is the author of two short story collections, three memoirs, several children's books, and two novels. Today, we will be talking about her most recent novel, The Desert Between Us, set in St. Thomas, Nevada in the 1860s. Dean Hughes has published over 100 novels. He has also received several AML awards, including the 2005 Smith Pettit Foundation Award for Outstanding Contribution to Mormon Letters for his Children of the Promise series, and a 2013 Outstanding Achievement Award for his writing career. In 2019, Desert Book published Muddy, Where Faith and Polygamy Collide, set in the same St. Thomas, Nevada, in the 1860s, and it won both the Association for Mormon Letters and the Whitney Awards for Novel. In 2020, its sequel was published, titled River, Where Faith and Consecration Converge, which takes the story of the Morgans and moves them to Orderville in the Long Valley north of Kanab in southern Utah in roughly the 1870s. John Banyan teaches in the English department at Brigham Young University, where he teaches writing fiction and creative nonfiction, and is a past president of the Association for Mormon Letters. He leads outdoor writing programs that use the writing of personal essays to promote student growth. His earlier works include a collection of short fiction, Breeding Leah and Other Stories, and the novel Falling Toward Heaven. He has twice won AML awards. In 2019, he had both a novel and its sequel published, An Unarmed Woman and the sequel Ezekiel's Third Wife, both murder mysteries set in the Rush Lake Valley, South of Twila, in 1887 and 1891. So welcome to all of you. Thank you for being with us. Glad to be here. Phyllis, can you, we start with you. Can you tell us about The Desert Between Us? Well, um, when I heard there were camels in Southwest, I couldn't believe my ears. <laughs> and so I wanted to know more about camels and why they were there and, and if that was really true. And I found out that in 1858, um, the U.S. government bought 75 camels to help explore a route to California because apparently the other routes, the Northern route was uh, too affected by weather and the Southern route was, uh, had a lot of Apaches and a lot of um, problems with that tribe. So they were looking for a middle route and that was a very waterless place from Albuquerque to where needles is today. So anyway, the U S government bought 75 camels and I um, wrote about that uh, expedition, and then I interlaced it or braided it with a story of a third wife of a polygamist and uh, her husband, who was a mail carrier in St. Thomas. And um, I actually have a relative that was a mail carrier in St. Thomas, but that's the, I mean, I don't know anything more about him. Um, but he had, except that he had a bad temper. And so I took advantage of that in the, uh, text that I wrote. So uh, anyway, I wanted to um, place Mormonism in a context because I'll preface that by saying when I grew up, um, it was like everything was a Mormon story. And uh, when the Mormons came to the West, it was like, that's all that was happening. So I was curious about what was happening in the rest of the United States at the same time. So that's why I wanted to um, combine 
this expedition with a polygam story of a polygamist in St. Thomas, Nevada. So anything else I need to tell you? Well, I think that's great. That's a great introduction. So we'll loop back around and, and, and ask some more about that. Uh, but okay, Dean, why don't you tell us about your two books? You know, I came at it indirectly also. I had a relative who uh, was in the Muddy Mission in in that uh, Moapa Valley. And uh, and um, I when I came across that, I thought, what was the Muddy Mission? And so I started reading about it and, uh, and found it really interesting. And one of the things I came across early was that uh, Brigham Young um, called a, a, several return missionaries to go down there with the original group. They were newly returned missionaries. And he told them they needed to go out and find wives before they left. And they had a couple of weeks before they could do that. And so that was kind of the opening of, of my novel. I hadn't thought so much about polygamy until I started looking into it more and found out that quite a few of the families who were down there uh, were, uh, you know, practicing uh, plural marriage. And so I, I realized if I was going to deal with it, I, I, I needed to to get into that subject. So I went to the folks at Deseret Book and said, how would you feel about that? Because I know it's been a taboo subject for a long time. And Laurel Christensen Day there said, I would love to have you write about that. I think it's time we do that. And she said, um, and I would love to feel better about polygamy. <laughs> and, and so... Um, uh, you know, I think we have. I, I think we have this narrative that came from from Easterners back in the day of, of saying that there were these that lascivious, terrible men who c collected these harems out in Utah, and um, and I think to some degree we've 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 bought into that in the sense that we've been sort of ashamed of our own history. And yet, so many of us come from that heritage, and so that was. Uh, part of what I wanted to do. I like the idea that this was a young couple that went down there and didn't have any interest whatsoever in, in entering into plural marriage. And, um, and then a situation comes up where they're asked to, to enter it. Uh, one person wrote that that was a, that was a terrible trope that the, you know, this idea that the, that the, um, Mormons uh, all married uh, widows, and that was all that was behind me. I didn't mean to imply that. And in fact, I make up for that, I think, in the second novel by showing that it didn't always happen that way. But, um, but that was sort of my idea, that I wanted it to be clear that for, for most people who entered uh, plural marriage, they were usually not very excited about it at first, and especially the women, of course. And, and, uh, it they often spoke of it, and when you read their journals, they often speak of it as the greatest burden they ever had to carry in their lives, the hardest test they ever went through. And yet, at the same time, they often defended it, and you know what they learned from it, and why it was important to them, and so forth. And so, I I tried to create all of that. I one way I tried to do that is to have my main characters have one version of what uh, polygamy was like. And then I try to sprinkle in with that a lot of other versions because just like marriages these days, <laughs> every marriage is somewhat different. And uh, that was certainly true in polygamy that, um, that, um, every, you know, it varied tremendously by, you know, how they lived, uh, what, uh, you know, whether they all lived in the same house or in separate houses or, or how well the wives got along together, how the men treated the women, all of those, those things 
very greatly from one uh, marriage to another. So that was kind of the process I went through. I was going to write one big novel, and then I realized it was going to be too big because the, the Muddy River people then went to Long Valley, so I decided to break it into two books. So then you have a second book, uh, River, which is set in Long Valley, and the United Order uh, yeah. comes in, and that's yeah. a big as well and i don't I, there's not been a lot of writing about the united order in, in our literature either i don't think yeah well I, I feel like in my old age i want to take on some interesting subjects and maybe even push the envelope just a little bit <laughs> i don't push it too far but I, I i i wanted to take on some interesting topics that we haven't written about much before we're all about the idea at the same time <laughs> to write about polygamy but uh, but until lately there hasn't been that much except for Joshua, which you uh, are very familiar with. Yeah, I am. I'd like to talk about Ring Whipple and the Giant Joshua later as well. But okay, thank you. So, John, tell us about your novels. Well, I, uh, it fits in my general pattern of writing about the eastern edge of the Great Basin. And, with, uh, you know, growing up, we called it desert, but it's not really desert. It just, it's just arid land. Mm-hmm. And uh, my daughter once said that, uh, she said, you write about depressed Mormons in the desert. And she said, that's just not a sexy subject. <laughs> well, you get pretty sexy. <laughs> well, I try to pep it up a little bit, but that's, that's my fate is to write about depressed Mormons in the desert. Although the young w- woman in these novels is not depressed. So uh, that's a break in my pattern. So <laughs> two out of three isn't bad. So, uh, Unlike my friend and mentor, uh, Doug Thayer, who, who'd like to write about people right in the center of Mormonism and that, that, that kind of struggle, I'm interested in people who are kind of on the fringe. And this uh, idea of a young woman who is comes from a non-Mormon Gentile background uh, from the mining fields in Nevada and is taken under the wing of a Mormon patriarch and brought into his family by marrying her mother and uh, but she still uh, has that so many independent feelings, and that's kind of the core of it. Uh, I, one of my readers uh, of the second novel said, complained that she wasn't really a 19th century um, feminist, and that didn't bother me a heck of a lot. So, you know, that I'm stretching the boundary a little bit. So anyway... I have this character, and um, I grew up in a town where there was a water turn, a water master, and we'd flood our yard and fields, you know, on our water turn, and so I'm familiar with that. And then I read Virginia uh, Sorensen's story, Where Nothing Is Long Ago, about a water killing, and I thought, oh, yeah, let's write about that. (laughs) So I did that. I wrote the second novel in the series first, uh, meaning I wrote Ezekiel's third wife before I wrote An Unarmed Woman. And then I thought, oh, there's this other subject that I could write about. Um, so the first one is about a, the uh, Ezekiel's third wife is about a water killing. And then the second wife, second story, is about a, a, the killing of some federal deputies, which I don't know for sure ever happened, but it sure could have happened. And so the in, in each of the novel, there are a whole bunch of suspects because water is scarce and anybody could have killed the, the, a water stealer. and in the second novel, everyone was a polygamist, and so they uh, anybody could have killed those two federal deputies. So I like that idea of a of a a novelist uh, of a mystery story where all the people in town are involved and suspected, and it's a community uh, 
As I get crispy. Yeah. Or, or um, um, the Navajo writer uh, Navo, wrote about Navajo. Tony. Yeah, right. Tony, yeah. You know, a lot about I mean, the disruption I mean, of a killing is the disruption in the communal fabric and in the geographical or, or uh, landscape fabric. Anyway, the, um, so that's what uh, those two novels. And I, I like the two characters, this young woman, but also uh, uh, an old older father figure who is partly my great-great-grandfather, who's a pacifist. He was, he wrote in his journal about, um, he heard someone, uh, maybe Orson Pratt, but some general authority say, no, Mormons should not take retribution on Missourians. You know, and and then, you know, talking about the Mountain Missouri Massacre later. And so my grandfather agreed with that, you know, so he's kind of a pacifist, but um, Orrin Porter uh, Rockwell was not a pacifist. And so I took those two characters and put them together. And I like the tension between this young woman and that older guy. So that's some stuff about my novel. novel. Right. It's a great genre convention where your older detective, JD, is a, a great tracker. And then his stepdaughter becomes a, his invaluable assistant in these mystery uh, investigations. So, Phyllis, I love the um, the way that you used the landscape, made this area so real. Did you just spend a lot of time down there? Las Vegas and Boulder City are only about 50 miles away from St. Thomas. <laughs> and I grew up there. So, uh, And the desert was always, it was frightening to me because it was so, so, so hot in the summertime. And we'd go down to Hoover Dam a lot because I guess my father helped work on it in the beginning and said it was a big deal to do. But um, it would get 120, 130 degrees in the shade. Uh, and we once took some people from New York down there, and they were scared to death of all those curves and <laughs> the, the rocks and everything like that. But the landscape was very um, familiar to me and very much a part of me growing up because it frightened me. I mean, it was, it was something to deal with. I'm interested in the historical fiction uh, research that you guys put into it. What was your go-tos for understanding this period of history? As I told you earlier, when I wanted to do the the camel expedition coming across, or the, and then um, I realized St. Thomas was formed about the same, about five years later, right after the Civil War. What's the state of St. Thomas now? You can see the foundations of the school and some of the houses, but uh, it was underwater for uh, many, many years. Right. When, I guess the Hoover Dam was built. Is, it flooded it? Right. When Hoover Dam was built. The Lake Mead uh, flooded it out. And there are pictures of uh, some of the early st- uh, settlers staying there till the um, water came up to there. <laughs> and they have a boat waiting for them to get. I mean, very dramatic. <laughs> the, the Muddy Mission. So this was the mission set up by Brigham Young. Uh, and so St. Thomas was one of the main communities in this mission. It just sounds like a miserable place for both of your books. I'm surprised they hung on as long as they did. What were they doing there? What was the purpose of the mission? Grow cotton, wasn't it? Uh, the main purpose. Brigham had heard. He didn't go down there until the very end, as both Dean and I talk about in our books. That he wanted the saints to grow cotton because of the Civil War. There was no cotton coming into Utah. You, you really put your characters through hell in, in these books. You put them in some terrible, <laughs> terrible times. And- I mentioned that my uh, great-great-grandmother, uh, Esther Ann Birch Benyon, went down there. And in April of 1869, she wrote in her wrote a letter in which she said, this is a strange country to live in. 
Everything has thorns on it which tar clothes to rags, and the ground is almost covered with little prickles and rocks, making it impossible for any to go barefoot except for around home. The wear and tear on shoes and clothes is terrible. (laughs) And then later she says, Sister Murdoch tells me of how they pass the summer here, and it almost scares me, but if others live through it, I hope I shall. One of the first things that caught my interest in the whole story was that it's one of the few missions of the church. I mean, we tried various, you know, iron missions and so forth, but but we at least stayed there, you know, when the iron didn't work out so well. But this is one of the few missions where they just finally said, let's let's quit. And, you know, <laughs> Brigham Young came down and, <laughs> you know, when you ask what what sources to use. I used a lot of Warren Foote in his journal, and he tells the story of Brigham coming down there and looking around saying, this was not how this place was represented to me. You know, you think these people feel like they've been inspired. I mean, they've been led by inspiration of the prophet to come down here. And those who stayed, stayed out of faith that they'd been called and now Brigham comes down and says oh wow, this isn't a very good place is it and uh, what he finally did is he said um, if you want to stay uh, you know vote on it and if you all decide to stay stay but if, if you vote to leave then then all of you just leave and of course they voted for that but there were quite a few things involved in that they didn't know they were in Nevada that's the big reason they left. Yeah. It was unclear where the boundaries were. So Nevada was charging them higher taxes than they had been paying to either Arizona or Utah. Now Nevada was saying, we want your back taxes. Right. And we want it in gold or silver, you know, which they had not. In 1865, when uh, Abraham Lincoln needed Nevada to um, pass his famous proclamation, he needed Nevada. So at the time, there were a lot of silver miners in the state. But if they would have waited one year, there would not have been enough people in the state to make it a state. Anyway, that's why Nevada became a state. And then they needed money wherever they could get it. And they got greedy with St. Thomas. So anyway, there were good reasons why they left. But 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 I thought the fact that it didn't work out was kind of one of the interests to me. I'm always interested in the challenge of people who um, really want to do what's right and have a hard time accepting all of the <laughs> guidance they get from church leaders. That 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 tension between between trying to be obedient and trusting your own mind and your own decisions. And I think it's especially tough for a lot of people now and a lot of young people. And so that that gradually became almost more my interest in the polygamy, the, just that tension between that trying to make that decision as to follow your leaders or not. Right. Morgan is a great character who, at the very beginning, he, he sees his dad's polygamous marriage and he's not impressed by it. So he does not want to be in a polygamous marriage and he promises his bride that that's not what they're going to do. But then he gets called on this mission that seems... To to him to be a failure, but he's, but it feels like it's a call and he's called to be in polygamy. And so, so he has these two big things that he thinks are wrong or mistakes perhaps, but also feels a responsibility to fulfill. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting balance. You know, you talk about the, uh, that country down there. One of the things I'm envious of, is, of these other two, Phyllis and John, is that they evoke the place better than I can. I I grew up in a city <laughs> and I went down to Moapa Valley and spent time there, took a lot of pictures so that I could look at them as I worked. But I have a hard time with that, you know, and I, I loved the way that Maureen Whipple could just create a sense of place that was so powerful. I read her book three times, you know, but I'm not good at that. And then 
you know, I'll, I try, then I, then I think I'm trying too hard to sound too poetic here. It doesn't work. I'll, I'll just, I'll see if I can get good characters. If, if there's anything I can do, that's what I have tended to do. I've always loved your stories, loved the, the plots and the characters and the, and the emotions they feel. So uh, it's great stuff. I have a kind of a comment or a question about place. Uh, Phyllis, your book's name is The Desert Between Us. And long, long time ago, I read a book by Richard Bushman called From Puritan to Yankee. And the idea in that book that is that as uh, Puritan villages grew, they started as, as a central village with a church in it, uh, the farms right around there. And then their sons had farms around that and their grandsons and granddaughters had farms around that. Eventually it became too far to walk back to church. And so they started a set a second church which disrupted the old church and offended the, the founders. And so there was a division and part of that physical distance turned them into Yankees. Mm-hmm. I think the same thing happened to a lot of characters in the West that their independence as cow herders out on the sheep camp, out on the sheep herd, a distance from their Mormon village out in that desert that was fearful to people. They started I don't know that drinking coffee was much of a, a problem then, but, the, you know, they started uh, engaging in wild behavior that was fitting for cowboys and people outside the Mormon village. And I don't know how that's connected exactly to all these books, but I think that's an aspect of the frontier that really is embedded in our history. I mean, you take a Mormon village, which is in squares, and put it in the middle of a wilderness, that's a signal that people think of the town as safety and the wilderness as some place dangerous. So I, I really agree with what you said earlier, Phyllis, about the desert being a fearful place, or that's interesting to me. You know, in, uh, in Orderville, one of the big problems was getting too big. And it's a, it's a similar kind of idea that when you're trying to live that kind of communal life, if there come to be too many, and especially second generation, it's the same thing. You spread too wide. You can't hold that family feeling that, that Brigham Young believed in. You know, one of the interesting aspects of that is that a lot of times the young men were the ones who went out and tried to find another way to make a living. I think that is a somewhat of an explanation why we, you know, people will always say, well, the reason for polygamy was there were more men than women or more women than men. And that just, it just wasn't the case, but but there were probably more women who stayed closer to the church and and continued to live the traditional principles than there were young men. So that that became an interesting thing to me. One of the aspects of it is that I get into in rivers that sometimes eventually the younger women often were more attracted to the established men and leaders to be second and third and fourth wives than they were to the pimple-faced kids their own age, you know. But I do think that was an interesting thing about about Orderville, who stayed with United Order longer than any other community. But as it as they kept letting more people in, it just got harder and harder to uh, to keep that center of focus. I was just going to remind you about the lost boys yeah. who were not appealing to the women. Yeah. And Dean has a scene of that in, in River where, you know, that some of these young men are saying, the girls aren't going to marry us. And so I was wondering, I, I hadn't really heard about that. I mean, we think of the FLDS and there's the lost boys that are kicked out of the community. I, I don't think the mainstream church ever had anything like that. But, you know, what did happen to the, the boys who couldn't get married? 
Uh, within Orderville, there was a feeling that we are not uh, well accepted here because people started to realize that if we go on to a second generation and try to pull in the children of everyone, it, it is going to get too big. And there was talk of, well, maybe we can establish more communities, but other communities were going away from the United Order. And so it left these young people in Orderville with uh, with not many uh, answers as to what they could do. And so they tended to leave when they got to a certain age. But I don't know that there's anything specific that I've come across about kind of the lost boys kind of thing. Well, John, how about what, what was the resources that you used to understand this period and especially the, the polygamy of this period? One more comment about the lost boy kind of idea really quickly is that my great-great-grandmother, he wasn't a lost boy because of polygamy. He was lost because of he was out on the sheep herd and the cattle herd all the time, or, you know, he was estranged. What she did was she put into his saddlebags the volumes of Shakespeare on one side and the script and the Bible on the other. And she thought that would ground him, you know, keep him in the community connected, you know, in some way to humanity. My grandfather lived out in the desert and my uncles thought he's forgotten, said once to me, he's forgotten how to be a human. Any rate, the, the desert does that to people. Okay, back to sources. I, um, my family were writers and they left a lot of journals about how they felt about polygamy. My ancestor who went down with John Benyon to the Muddy Mission was his second wife, and she and the first wife just could not get along. There was a lot of animosity between them, not so much from the younger wife, but it was just impossible for the older woman to think about polygamy. And so I'm, I've been aware, family members have written other novels about that subject of division in a polygamous family, and so I was interested in showing a family that where it worked pretty well, in J.D.'s household, but where in a lot of other households, it just didn't work at all. And then I read a lot of the historical documents about how polygamy worked, you know, and the various laws that were passed as, they, as we went forward. In Ezekiel's third wife, I just relied on my own sense of how valuable water is and what would happen psychologically when there's a drought in the summer and people just need the water. So I didn't have to do as much research for that. About the water, that's not a exactly a United Order situation, but it is a it is a shared resource situation that's kind of similar to the Orderville, and that's dangerous, right? There, I mean, there's the, the kind of the tragedy of the Commons where somebody's going to take advantage of it. Perhaps it's a fascinating problem. This kind of gospel desire to share and work together, but it's you know so hard to do. In another context, I've written a historical article about a battle over water that my uh, great-grandfather was engaged in with the other members of the bishopric. In the early days, they didn't deal with water the way we do now. Water was not ownable. Brigham Young said, water can't be owned. A river cannot be owned. It was more riparian rights. And so when a new family moved into a village, the water was redistributed Nobody owned it, and so the village owned it. And then later when it became property, there was a lot of conflict between the new way and the old way. You've described it accurately. There's a, a communal stress when resources are not enough for the whole community and new people move in and the older people resent it. There's a lot of stress about that in Mormon villages. And just there hasn't been a lot of literature. I mean, this is such a, a fascinating period, and I just haven't read a lot about you know, the United Order and how, how it played out. I, I can think of the one is the the musical by Carolyn Pearson. 
uh, the order is love, uh, right? Which uh, the only thing I remember from that is the song about the um, the wearing down the pants, where the yeah. young men decided to purposely put their pants on the turning wheel and wear it down so they could get a new pair of pants. And uh, you had that you had a, that scene. I was excited to see that you had that story as well. So I guess that's a true story. It's probably yeah. It's probably the best known story from Orderville. It's been told many times. Yeah. But, you know, th- th- there hasn't been uh, a great deal written about it. Well, there has been a good deal written, but not, not those big books that you, that you see in some uh, areas. Uh, Leonard Arrington did a long um, monogram about Orderville. Then there have been several, one master's thesis and several long articles in various publications. Uh, quite a few journals that came out of that period of time to, that are available, family uh, histories and that sort of thing. So you can get a pretty uh, uh, thorough picture of, of how things went there, what happened and so forth. Again, so we're talking about the desert, and these people often these sheep herding and cow herding and very individualistic cowboy types. And for them to then turn to this communal, the communal system that has socialistic you know, aspects of it is very hard, I think, for us to imagine today. Well, part of it, though, came right out of their experience on the Muddy. Um, they had to work together. They were just barely surviving. And, uh, you know, the, that digging of all those canals and keep digging them out and, you know, communal gardens and, and various things they did there just to survive. And so it was a kind of a natural thing. You notice when they came up to uh, Long Valley and then the old settlers who had been there and had left start coming back, those old settlers, most of them didn't want to be part of that. And, and as I have it in my book, most of them, if they joined early, they dropped out soon. It was it was mostly the muddy people, the muddy mission people who uh, formed this and stayed with them for such a long time. Well, do you have any questions for each other? Phyllis, in your book, there's a picture of you with a camel. <laughs> I'm interested in having you talk about that picture in the back flyleaf of your book. I met a man at the Christkindle Market who had a nativity scene, a live one, and he had a camel. And I just said, wow, can I come out and see your camel, get to know camels better? And I went out there, and he's out near Twilla. He keeps all kinds of animals, but he had some camels there. And I said, mm. well, could we do a photo shoot with a camel? Because I thought this is too good of an opportunity to pass. <laughs> so I went out there with a wonderful photographer, Jennifer Labrizi, and um, the camels are huge. They're really big. I, I talked about how big they are in the book, but then when I was really with them, it was like, oh, my <laughs> <laughs> and they can uh, knock you over with their necks. They're very powerful animals, but um, I have a great respect for camels. When we were on our mission in Lebanon, we uh, went over to Jordan, went to Petra, and uh, you take camel rides there. And I was all ready to go. And Kathy had heard a story about someone coming home with fleas from riding those <laughs> camels. <laughs> And she wouldn't let me go. But, you know, you, you don't see any camels at all in Lebanon. But out in, in Jordan, you'd see better ones out there, their tents and everything. It was really quite amazing to see that. Well, the, the yeah, better ones are really good with camels. but the, And I use that in my book. But the horsemen, uh, when they were going across, um, the United States didn't like the camels at all. And the horses didn't like the camels. Mm-hmm. They ended up getting rid of the camels at the end. Even pushing him off cliffs. Well, now, Phyllis, so with the camel, there was an Arab character, and then there's the Native American, the Mojave Indian, all who are t- 
tied to this camel and, and, and Jeffrey, the, uh, the former army employee, you, you bring in lots of different people in your story, lots of people coming from different areas. And especially, it's nice to see uh, Native Americans brought into Mormon literature. I mean, Native Americans are such a big part of this world, and they're too often ignored. I think Maureen Whipple did a fairly good job of bringing Native Americans into the giant Joshua. But in a lot of other places, they just, they're just they just they're gone. You know, it's just the empty land and the Mormons. But you brought them all together, and I like to see that. Thank you. One of the hard things, I think, is is the attitude that people had about, you know, Native Americans and the things they would say. And, you you know, you didn't want to make them more progressive about that than they were. But you also felt, I did, you know, in, down in Moapa Valley, I felt really nervous about using some of the, their attitudes. And so... Uh, I have this one scene, you know, where the where an Indian fellow comes to the house, and I tried to show the fear that they had that was mo- mostly based on um, on what they had always heard. And then, of course, I brought Jacob Hamblin into it a little bit to kind of show that there were those who were working to do something different, something better. But there was a lot of talk, you know, they, they didn't, you know, it wasn't so much that all oh, their savages as it was their beggars right. and, and their They'll, and of course, they did steal their horses. In this case, in in there in, in St. Thomas, they 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 put their horses out on an island in the river, and and the Indians did steal them and take them away. And then later they came back, and it's kind of one of the stories of that time. So there is that interaction, but it's hard to do and and not sound racist. And uh, I was trying to be really careful with that. Well, I went down to uh, Needles to where a lot of the Mojave are living today and to their community and, and tried to meet with the elders, but they were they were gone. So I'd met with some of the people, but they wouldn't tell me anything. Mm. I wanted to have an accurate kind of a name for Kwan Yumai. Uh, we call him Kwame. Uh, they they would said, well, you can ask this of the elder. I said, can't you just tell me a name <laughs> that it would be good no, we're, you have to talk to the elders. So um, they are very protective of their property down there along the Colorado River. Mm-hmm. So, And I guess they had a split in their tribe as well. Yeah. But um, it's it's really interesting history. And I, I would love that story about the Indians taking the horses off the island and eating them. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't say that. <laughs> well, they did. They, they drove them off took them long distance away and then ate them along the way. They were hungry, you know, and that's what was part of the problem. In uh, Ezekiel's third wife, her illicit uh, husband is part Native American. And I, I know that the Goshutes were great runners. My uncle, who I can, who I don't know what I can believe of anything <laughs> he said, you know, he was a great storyteller and he made a lot of stuff up. Some go-shoots would run alongside the, the stagecoach from uh, Simpson Springs as it was going west, you know, eventually toward Car- Carson City. But they would run along and they'd do cartwheels and they'd keep up with the horses and they'd uh, do tricks and different things. And then when they got to the next stop, the people on the stage would give them uh, bullets or whatever food or whatever they could. And so I made this second husband of Rachel's into a runner because of his background that way. I like that. Phyllis, can I come back to polygamy as the, as the, the female author here? How was the experience of writing about polygamy for you? 
Well, um, golly, I've been so into, <laughs> engrossed in your characters. I forgot the names of mine. I think her name's Sophia. <laughs> um, she was a, uh, she was converted in England and then she came across the plains and then she married somebody she really loved. And then he, he fell out of love with the Mormon church. And he let, he said, I know that it's too hard that you care a lot about this. So I think it would be better if you stayed here and I leave. So he left and then she gets into polygamy because she re- hears the talk about the glory in the following kingdoms in the coming kingdom. So she's in polygamous, but she gets there freely for safety's sake. And then she goes down to Southern Nevada. But with, there are three wives. He's married to three women, and she really likes the first wife. She can't stand the second wife. So um, I use that tension in the novel with those three women. But uh, Sophia ends up going and living. In the end, after her husband dies, she goes back and lives with the other polygamous wife. So I didn't ever come down on polygamy one way or the other, but um, these two women became very close to each other. There's been an awful lot written about polygamy. That's one area. You know, there's many, like Jesse Embry's book, where she really goes through and and shows all the varieties of forms it took. And and, and then there are a lot of uh, uh, published life histories or journals and so forth. Uh, So you can get individual stories of of how women reacted to their situation. And most of them are from the women's point of view. You get a little bit of the men's. I was interested in trying to, to deal with that, what would it be like to try to be a righteous man and a good husband and in, in, in polygamy? I think that was really complicated. <laughs> and so a lot of that I had to try to imagine rather than that I could find anyone who talked about it very much. Well, you did a good job. Oh, thanks. Um, I, and, and and you you uh, really noted how difficult it was for the men, mm-hmm. which I liked because you don't hear much about that. So yeah. ending up feeling kind of left out that there's a society of women in in the book, the house full of uh, females. Uh, you, you get that sense of how they created their own society within that marriage, and uh, you know, I think for a lot of men, men that was probably just fine. I'm out. <laughs> doing what I do and you women do what you do. But uh, if you wanted to have a, a relationship with especially more than one of them, I think that would have been really difficult. Yeah. I felt like you'd read Laurel Thatcher Ulrich's House Full of Women. Yeah. Yeah. My sister uh, is a social anthropologist and her area of study is polygamy, Janet Benyon. And she taught me that idea that Dean just expressed that there were, including in modern polygamy, there are these women's networks that are very important to the community. Now, I want to mention to the the listeners that another great book about this period in polygamy is The Giant Joshua by Maureen Whipple, which was written in 1940, uh, which I believe is is one of the great classics of modern literature. And By Common Consent Press has just published a collection of Maureen's writings called a Craving for Beauty, The Collected Writings of Maureen Whipple, uh, edited by me and Vita Hale and Lynn Larson. Vita Hale had, had befriended Maureen in her last years and spent a lot of time with her and went over a lot of her unpublished writings with her and got her stories about how these were written and, and you know, what, what she wanted to do with them. And so she started getting them together with Levine and Fielding Anderson. The two of them were working on editing a collection, but then that stalled out in the 90s and they got busy with other things. And Vita eventually wrote a biography of Marine, which was published about, about a decade ago. But then I met Levina Fielding Anderson and 
got to know her and she pulled out this thumb drive of their work that they had done in the 90s that, that had been on saved on this disc. And uh, she said, can you find someone to finish this work, get it over the finish line? So I contacted Vita and then we brought in Lynn as well. And we went, spent a lot of time in the BYU and the Dixie University archives where her papers are stored and went through there and picked the best stories and essays and including the sequel to the giant Joshua that she wrote in mostly in, right after world war II, about 1945, 1946, she wrote four very long chapters about the next generation that was in the early 1900s, the children of the main characters in the giant Joshua. So that's just come out and it's a wonderful collection. John, I think you, you've written about Marine a little bit. Does she have an impact on your writing? Uh, oh, absolutely, on my writing uh, and on my teaching. I teach literature of the LDS, you know, occasionally at BYU, and that's a book that you just have to have in there, along with Virginia Sorensen and others. But that giant Joshua is the is the Mormon epic that we have so far. And in an essay on Mormon literature that I wrote for BYU Studies, I found out that Houghton Mifflin, they thought that there would be this massive Mormon readership who would join in, but, but then uh, Apostle Witzo kind of condemned the book a little bit or wrote a negative review of it, and that kind of killed that audience. Then she was kicked out of her place in the library in St. George. You know, no, not, I don't mean to say kicked out, but she was no longer able to do research and writing there, and she, she felt estranged for a lot of her life. And after uh, Vita discovered her in these writings, Eugene England and some others brought her up north and we had an evening in a canyon above Springville uh, talking to her. I was able to meet her and she was not as sharp as she had once been. But one of the things she said really stuck with me. She said, I never made anything up, meaning that she drew everything in her books from a real event. I noticed that's true of her speeches, you know, Erastus Snow and others that she quoted from speeches that they had written. She didn't make the, up the speeches. And so it's really a, a wonderful novel that it's too bad that she didn't get to experience all the you know, the success she hoped she would. Yeah, it's a great tragedy. I mean, she had a very difficult life, and she had a difficult personality. She Some of her problems she brought on herself. But, yeah, she was, I think, very sad that she wasn't accepted to the degree that she was hoping for. And... She has this approach, and there's another story, a Mormon saga, that she wrote in college, the University of Utah, about a young couple in Nauvoo and then going west. That just, just got published in this most recent issue. You know, she just wanted to tell the story that she'd heard from her grandparents and from the other older people that she loves spending time with in St. George. You know, she just spent a lot of time with them and soaked up their stories and, and, and did, like, the Rasa Snow speeches. She studied the... Uh, unpublished history of St. George written by James Bleak. The main characters were partly based on James Bleak and his wife, who he was the uh, unofficial historian, I guess the official historian of St. George. Anyway, so she just wanted to get their stories out. And so she just, this mixture of really kind of brutal and sad things that the Mormons in the 40s didn't want to read about these tragedies and the mistakes that their leaders sometimes made, but she always also felt part of the community and, and celebrated this grand dream of building a Zion community. She had a, she had a tremendous uh, memory, apparently, or, or she retained so much information. I, I see this with John when I when I read about 
taking water turns and everything. And I think, yeah, that's what I like. I don't know that stuff. I have to research it. I have to find out. But she knew everything about about farming, about, you know, making cheese. It didn't matter what it was, what the subject is. She just, and there's so much detail in it. I went through John Joshua putting post-it notes in places that I wanted to go back and look at it again so that I could remember some of the kinds of things that she knew. And (laughs) my book is all post-it notes. I've I've never taken them out. I look over there on my shelf and I can see it. It's just nothing but post-it notes sticking out of that book. And yet I couldn't use nearly so much as she did. I mean, uh, there's a part of writing for a kind of more popular market is that you have to keep your story going and you can't get into that detail as much. But to read to read her is to read a historical document, to know a time and a place and a people in a way that, that uh, I could never accomplish. Yeah, it's a real miracle that she was able to publish that book. She, I mean, she had gotten these advances from Hunt Mifflin, so she was able to have this couple of years to just sit and research and write, and uh, she unfortunately never had that good situation again, so she was never able to produce the, the sequel that she'd hoped to do. But again, in this collection that we have, there's a lot of works that nobody's read before that's really wonderful stuff. When we met in uh, Springville Canyon, it was clear that she enjoyed having people appreciate what she had done. I just feel too bad that people lost contact with her you know the the academic establishment that was reading her books and loving them they didn't think anything about where she was and then finally they did just before she died and i know that she really appreciated that but a little bit late kind of yeah uh gene england wrote an essay which he questioned the ending of the giant joshua where i I don't remember his name ezekiel i uh anyway where he takes a young wife and goes north to be president of the temple and and it, it turns into something different than the rest of the novel has been, kind of a, a bizarre, mag- not magical realist, but just bizarre. You know, and you thought that destroyed the unity of it, but that kind of thing happened. And um, I don't find it a disunifying factor because this poor woman, young woman who was his wife, sacrificed so much for him and, and really came to love him and appreciate him as much as she could. And then he leaves her. It's a tragedy, but there's a comic or a ridiculous element with it, too. This old man connecting himself again to a young, young woman. And, you know, it's part of our heritage is that kind of odd, tragic, distorted comedy. And it actually was based on what did happen to her grandfather. Her grandfather was called to be a temple president. And this is the time of the, the raid. And so the idea was he should only take one wife with him so he wouldn't get arrested. And he took this younger one. <laughs> well, thank you so much, everybody, for joining me. I really enjoyed talking about your books, and I loved your books. And I hope that all the listeners will will go out there and get them. Thank you. This idea for the, the unity between these books is on you know people on the frontier, where things could go any direction at any time. I think that's a great concept that that really plays out in all our books. So I appreciate you organizing this panel. And it's interesting that we were all working on them at the same time and didn't know the others were working on similar subjects. Ah, yes. (laughs) Thank you.